0: Well, tonight I'm going to uh, talk about Francis Schaeffer's book called Back to Freedom and Dignity. And uh, I call this uh, lecture Looking into the Black Mirror, Back to Freedom and Dignity. So the, the title of the book is Back to Freedom and Dignity. Uh, I'll explain about that in a second. But Looking into the Black Mirror, Black Mirror is a TV show, uh, kind of a science fiction TV show that's talking about humans' engagement of technology. Uh, well, that will kind of be borne out in my lecture around what Schaefer says in his book, Back to Freedom. But I want to look at his, his book here, which was written in 1973. Uh, it's most explicitly a response to the behavioral psychologist B.F. Skinner's <clears throat> book, Beyond Freedom and Dignity. Beyond Freedom and Dignity, which was written in 1971. B. Skinner. B.F. Skinner a behaviorist, and I will explain who he is later. But his book argues that such a sentiment of humans having inherent dignity and freedom, or having an ego, or having equal value, is false. And in fact, it's unhelpful to understand humanity's true nature. Instead, we must see humans, he argues, as a result of the impersonal plus chance. uh, A collection of raw material. You're nothing but neurons and atoms. Something like that. Once we have the courage to accept this, we can more readily take society out of the hands of democratic ideals and into the hands of behavioral conditioning, which is best funded by the state. Mm -hmm. This is how society might be saved. Humanity might save itself. Uh, In Back to Freedom and Dignity, Schaefer says that once we remove the image of God and consider humans simply raw material... What we in fact do is we open ourselves up to manipulation, to governmental manipulation. Now, manipulation may be too strong of a word. You may think it's too strong of a word. Uh, This book kind of comes off as alarmist at times. But Schaefer raises similar red flags to C.S. Lewis um, in C.S. Lewis's book, Abolition of Man. Uh, C.S. Lewis argued in 1947 That when we remove men's chests, that means the ego or dignity, they will inevitably be ruled by their stomachs. That means by their appetites. Mm -hmm. Um, And while the Christian belief may remain in society, at least as a recent memory, the leaders will look to condition society through preferred sentiments or morals. So he's kind of saying something similar. Schaeffer doesn't call it sentiments. He calls it arbitrary absolutes. Uh, Social conditioning may be truer to the situation than manipulation, but I think it's just of the same kind but differs in degree. But they're talking about the same issue. Government conditioning or government manipulation of society because humanity is seen as raw material. So how does Schaefer come to believe and see this? Or how does C.S. Lewis, for that matter, And back to Freedom and Dignity, Schaefer engages with three major thinkers contemporary to his time in 1973. Uh, One, Jacques Monod, a molecular biologist. Francis Crick of DNA fame um, and a biologist. And B.F. Skinner, a behavioral psychologist. And he does it kind of alongside some 1970s technological advancements. IVF um, and pills, basically or ice cube babies, That's what, that just means frozen semen stored up at a sperm bank, oh, sperm. which is quite common for us to think now, but he was just like, this is actually happening. You may think it's futuristic, but this is happening now. Uh, it's so It's become so commonplace for us now that his book almost seems kind of comical in that sense, but you have to understand what was happening at that moment. <clears throat> Uh, I'll go through the argument of the book to show how he sees us becoming a society open to manipulation, and then I want to reflect on contemporary fears, uh, as further developments or as new technological developments should cause similar concern. So think Black Mirror. If you watch that show, it's a sci-fi show that looks at humanity's relationship to technology in their lives. Um, Often how it can go dark, how technology can take over, or how society can take over through technology. Often the Black Mirror is talking about how we're taken in by technology or society uses technology to control. Uh, Then at the very end, I want to look at how Christians may respond, because Schaefer only speaks about this very scantily or very implicitly in his book. Uh, he wants to deal with it more in, a, a, in other books that he's written, and so he's only referencing it in this book. Um, and my aim is also to not be alarmist. Okay. C.S. Lewis pointed out these issues 80 years ago. Schaefer felt that it was possible that his great-grandchildren, who are living right now, um, could be in a society dominated by state manipulation. That was his fear. He thought it was imminent. For his great-grandchildren. So he, I think that he thought at least in like 40 years. Um, it seems that the development was slower than what is assumed by Lewis or Schaefer, though Lewis doesn't really put a time frame on it. But it doesn't mean that it's any less real, any less real of a threat for us to consider. It also seems that people do not like or resist the idea of having no chess. That means people don't like the idea of not having dignity. We can't deal with thinking that we have no dignity, even if we don't have a basis for it. And so manipulation from the state may not come as easily. Nevertheless, our society continues to believe in a worldview that denies inherent dignity of a human being, and that has massive consequences today, particularly state control technology. Do you have a question there? No, just trying to Oh, okay. If you do have a question, just ask. Mm -hmm. See, I do call people out sometimes. So my aim is to help Christians understand what is at stake within a society that that has a predominant worldview of materialism, uh, particularly how materialism has its um, social effects. Materialism is the idea that there is no God, that all the world is closed by material causation. Um, think of uh, evolution as a non-purposeful, impersonal uh, cause. Evolution just kind of moves by chance. It's not pre-programmed and it just kind of moves, or at least it doesn't have any kind of design as far as we can tell. Uh, That's the theory of evolution, or at least that's a theory of evolution. And materialism holds that kind of view of reality, that all reality... Um, it originates in material, in matter. <clears throat> Christianity believes that origin begins in God. Materialism believes that the origin begins in matter. Okay. And believing that actually has huge implications for society. <clears throat> and that's why they don't believe that humanity has inherent dignity, because humans came about by accident. So uh, I want Christians to understand what's at stake better and also in understanding the arguments of materialism better. Christians may more consciously think through what society is saying at all different kinds of levels through internet, TV, school systems, governmental policies and how Christians may respond in what Schaefer calls a revolutionary way. Okay. So what does Schaefer say? <coughs> I'm going to Look at his arguments by looking at the three thinkers, Manot, Crick, and Skinner. Uh, And then I'll turn to uh, uh, some contemporary examples briefly, and then um, how Christians may respond. It's that simple. So the first figure he deals with is Jacques Manot. M-O-N-O-D. Jacques Manot. And uh, he wrote a book called Chance and Necessity. La Hazard et Necessité. Something like that. That's my French. Very parfait. Okay. So Chance and Necessity is the English translation. Uh, it was an absolute bestseller. Uh, it was only behind Eric Siegel's love story, which you all may know Eric Siegel's love story. Okay. It was a huge... Weeper, you know. Uh, but to say, I mean, it was a huge, uh, huge book. Maybe something like Harari's Sapiens or something like that. It it's a bestseller. Um, in this book, uh, Minot says that human life is a result of pure chance and natural selection. Pure chance and natural selection. That's how humanity came about. As a result, there are no moral absolutes and no inherent values. Minot says, A world that is deaf to his music, just as indifferent to his hopes as it is to his suffering or his crimes.
1: Okay.
0: So he's, he's saying that all the beauty that you create, all the, the struggles of life and the victories and all the despicable crimes, the world is deaf to them. So, where do values come from if there are no moral absolutes? Okay. Mano believes that since there is no intention in the universe, and since human existence is an accident of pure chance, we are free to choose our values. We are free to choose our values. Of course, Schaeffer recognizes quickly a contradiction here. How can Minot say that choice is a value? If there's no value, then why is choice a value? But he falls into the classic existentialism, you know, that humanity must make a choice in the midst of absurdity. Nevertheless, within uh, Minot's worldview, to construct values has two options, Schaeffer says. The first option to create values in this materialistic framework is to reduce everything to sociological averages. Okay, To reduce everything to sociological averages. Um, Schaefer refers to the work of Kinsey, you know, Kinsey had the Kinsey Report. He surveyed a whole bunch of people on sexual practices. Um, There's a lot of controversy around that, but Schaefer doesn't even deal with the controversy of his method. It doesn't matter to Schaefer. The problem that he has with Kinsey's premise was that if a certain percentage engages in various sexual practices, then it can be considered a value. It just reduces value to sociological averages. Yep.
2: What do you mean by a value, like like normal or
0: like a, a moral or something to be valued? <clears throat> you're talking about <clears throat> good. You know, a good. Was, and you're not allowed to talk about good in that context. So. Well, yes, but but uh, within this framework, he says that okay, we have to create values. So he's, he's saying creation, that we yeah. are, fundamentally there's no value. But we have to construct <laughs> values out of nothing. So uh, as um, Sean Kelly and Dreyfus, uh, two atheist philosophers said, it's creation, uh, I mean it's uh, meaning ex nihilo. So that means meaning out of nothing. Huh. Uh, and so really it's, tr- so we may say there are no values, but we can't help but create values. And so, why do we create values? Because, uh, because we do. Camus has uh, who? Camus was M- Noz's friend, and uh, and he has like, is it called an epigram? What is it at the beginning of a book, like a uh,
1: epilogue.
0: an epilogue,
1: yeah,
0: epigraph? Epigraph? So. an epigraph, like oh, like a like a quote, quote yeah, to honor somebody. And he quotes Camus. Um, <coughs> in fact, let's see if I can find it. <laughs> And this is what it says from page 13 of this little book. This universe, from now on without a master, seems to him neither sterile nor futile. The struggle towards the summit itself is enough to fill the heart of man. What he's referring to, Camus is referring to there, is the myth of Sisyphus. Is that Sisyphus was condemned by the gods. Mm -hmm. And for so long that he had to push the rock of the mountain out from the depths of hell, and it would reach into the peak of heaven right before it rolled back down. So Camus would have to walk, I mean, not Camus, (laughs) Sisyphus would have to walk down to the base of the mountain and push the rock back up. And he saw this, uh, this kind of Greek myth as indicative of human life. That what it is, is to make a choice to, um, you, you push and you push, why do you push a rock? Because you just do. You're condemned by the gods to do so. And every once in a while, most of life is hell, but every once in a while you have moments of bright light, of heaven, of reaching kind of the pinnacle or happiness. Camus felt this is what existence is. So what's the value? Push the rock. Um, you're, you're condemned to that value, in a sense. But, but what Camus and what Minot is saying is that it's a value to push the rock. Of course, Schaefer says, well, how can you say that's a value to push the rock? Um, <clears throat> And so within this worldview, he says there's only two ways of trying to create values by pushing the rock, as, as it were. And one is sociological averages. So you just try to figure out what society is doing on average. And then you say, OK, this is how society is. So you almost create values by what is, what is or popular. or but what is being what is being done. It's not even popular. It could be done in the dark. It could be. Um, but if people were honest, what do people averagely do? Then that's what society should base its values on.
3: So values are in flux.
0: Values are in flux.
3: Yeah.
0: He's saying that that's one way. <coughs> and that this largely works with us today in lots of societies. That's one way, but that's not what Minot prefers. Minot prefers the second option. And what Minot prefers is for the, there to be a development of an elite. That the elite will create values for society for their sake. He says that in order to have a stable state society and to remove nuclear weapons, 1971, right? We must have a world authority. You know, think of the UN, or we need world authorities to dictate values. Um, We need need, need an elite to tell our people what is right and wrong.
4: Okay. That seems more like what I mean from universities. That would be the elite that would be creating. Our yes,
0: and this actually will um, uh, this will actually reappear in all three thinkers. Mm. This is why he thinks it's open to manipulation because all three thinkers end with this thought. Mm. Um, now Schaefer says that the means are laudable; they're good means. You want a stable society, and you want to remove nuclear weapons. That's great. He goes, um, but what's clear is the cost of human freedom. It's the cost of human freedom. Okay, we'll just leave that there. We'll leave Minot there. The next person is Francis Crick. And the last person is Skinner. And, and, the, and the argument kind of builds up to a bigger and bigger time spent on these thinkers. So they all kind of think similar things, but it develops, but develops them more. Perhaps, perhaps each person has more to say. I don't know. Uh, okay, so he deals with Francis Crick. Now, he wrote a book called Of Molecules and Men. You know, it sounds like Steinbeck's of Mice and Men, uh, and stuff like that. But the what is dealing with, and what he deals with throughout this whole book, is he only wants to deal with these thinkers at the popular level. Because he says all these thinkers, and he's read the books um, by Minot, and Crick, and Skinner, uh, you know, like Beyond Freedom and Dignity, which was also a bestseller. Now, he's read these books, but oftentimes they move down into, they move from the Ival Tower and they trickle down into popular media. And that's where people start drinking it in. Okay? But it happens at kind of a, an academic elite and then it trickles down. And so what Schaefer is doing is saying, well, I'm just going to deal with the popular media versions uh, just so you know that I'm dealing with issues at the popular level, at the same level that you should be dealing with them. But you can also go and read these books. And he's, and so uh, he, he looks at articles from Time, Newsweek, New York Times, like all these kind of things that he's dealing with. Um, well, he looks at Crick's lecture, Why I Study Biology, and then like a Newsweek article that was written on this. Okay. Um, so he's not looking at of molecules in men, kind of like more an academic research thing. He's, he's trying to work at the popular level saying this is what society is breathing in at the popular level. It's no longer academic theory. it's actually being put into practice at the popular level. We need to be concerned at this level. So Crick was famous for discovering DNA, uh, the DNA template with Watson. Now Schaefer looks at Crick's lecture why I study biology. <coughs> Where Crick says that he studies biology not for scientific reasons, but for philosophic and religious reasons. Okay. Crick realizes that um, he believes that biology can give, uh, give religious, um, can give answers to religious questions. Biology can give answers to religious questions, meaning of life, and these kind of things. Well, Crick says that humans are but electrochemical machines electrochemical machines. They arose by natural selection, driven by pure chance. He believes that there's natural selection, but, but is pushed by pure chance. So we're not pre-programmed, we're just accidents of nature. So he shares this view with Minot. Now when Crick does speak of nature, he capitalizes nature, and he consider, and he says that he considers nature clever. And at times he refers to nature as she. Now Schaefer picks up on this and calls this semantic mysticism. Uh, it's a way of using language, a, a, a way of personifying something. Um, in order, Schaefer says, to take off the pressure of what he's really saying. He's trying to personalize nature. N- nature's clever and, and she does what she does. But it takes off the pressure of saying impersonal, non-purposeful chance. <coughs> he says, Schaefer says that Crick cannot stand his own position of the impersonal. He has to personalize it. He has to personify it. Schaefer says that this also relieves the pressure off the reader. And that the reader will then fail to understand what is really being said. They will start thinking nature in a personified way and take on what Crick is saying without realizing, actually, no, you need to be impersonal. You need to you need to read through his, his code. So Schaefer says, as Christians, we need to be careful readers to what people are truly saying. We need to read through, we need to think through. So the human person for Crick is genetically determined by heredity and environment. Okay? Your genetics and your environment. Because of this, we don't need to delay um, too much over how much is nature and how much is nurture. You know how people get into those debates? How much is nature? How much is nurture? Chris says, don't worry about that. It could be 90, 10, 90 to 10% or it could be 60 40. It doesn't matter. Because in the end, human person is merely mechanical factor. Okay. It's just nature, nurture. It's all the same. It's heredity, nature. It's environment, nurture. It's all the same difference. It's all mechanical, it's all just moving in this direction. And so he says man is dead. Don't think that you have an ego, don't think you have a conscious, um, um, or that you're really aware, it's just you are material causation. So as a result, the American Revolution had this false premise, Crick would say, that each person had value, equal value. Biologically, Crick says that this is unhealthy. Uh, rather, we need diversity. Now, when he, when he would refer to diversity, or at least non-homogeneity, he's not talking about cultural relativism as the way that we use the word diversity. Rather, he's talking about in human structure, there needs to be superior and inferior. Okay. So with this, he says, we need to decide what kind of people we want to make. If people are raw material, and, and it's unhealthy to be all equal, then there's need to be some who decides on what kind of people we want to make. Crick says that we, um, when he says we, he means himself, uh, and kind of a person in authority claiming um, the need for an elite. So when you're in authority and you're claiming a need for an elite, you probably put yourself in that bubble. And so Crick says that we should decide on who should have children and who should not. Okay. So you can see that he's going beyond genetic tinkering. It's a call for control by some over others. Furthermore, Crick calls that such societal restructuring would be too expensive for any individual or private practice, and so he's calling for public funding from the government, Um, and that this government funding needs to support an academic or scientific elite. Uh, there's a man named Gilbreth, Kenneth Gelbreth, who at the same period of time says the same thing. Schaefer picks this up in another book. The Church at the End of the 20th Century. This massive overhaul in society should also happen at the very elementary levels of education, says Crick. So we need to put materialism and help them understand that there needs to be an academic and scientific elite from the very get-go, so that children are weaned on this stuff. So in light of Schaefer looking at Crick, he just points out a few 70s technological advancements. IVF, neurological work, ice cube babies, you know, the sperm banks, and pills for mental health. Ice cube babies is pretty funny. Um, I don't think he had that sense of humor around that.
5: What's IVF?
0: IVF, in vitro fertilization. Oh, okay. Thank you. So all this was very new. All very new. Um, (coughs) euthanasia was not yet being done you know I mean it's kind of still new but he's saying but you know with the onset just let me give a couple examples with the onset of in vitro fertilization Watson who had worked with Crick said that there were too many dangers with IVF Mm -hmm. and that it could too easily lead to genetic tinkering with babies what we might call designer babies Height, eye color, whatever. Oh. Um, you can imagine that if you lead to that, and there's an elite, you know, uh, you just think about, oh, we want a superior race, or you think Brave New World. You know? We need, we need structured society. We need alpha. We need beta. We need all these. We need all these different kinds of people. Um, now, this isn't in Schaeffer's book. Um but it called to mind for me, um uh so abortion is legal in Canada, but as Julie and I went through pregnancy, the doctors could not tell us the sex of the baby until a certain time.
1: Uh
0: and I asked why and they said, well, because certain Chinese people would abort their baby in Canada if they discovered it was a girl. Oh. And so they wanted to wait. And so they were trying to curb this kind of activity. You don't remember that?
4: No, I'm just saying they probably don't have that anymore. They yeah, I don't know.
0: <laughs> I don't know if it is anymore. But I'm thinking while this is horrific um, and good that Canada had the mind to curb this, at least at that point, it led me to ask on what basis can we regulate abortion? Okay. On what basis can we re- regulate? That if someone wants to use it as birth control, why regulate it around Chinese families not wanting a daughter? What's what is the difference of that basis? If there's if there's no meaning in the world, there's no true value. Uh So why why rule in favor of one value over another?
5: There's no meaning in the world. Why have any rules? It's I mean it's it's the whole thing's kind of crazy. The very first,
6: like, foundation is completely wrong because, like, you know, if you really want to talk about which value comes to the first, then there should be a statement that value actually, or value should matter somehow. That's how people could, you know, think of which one has to come first or not. So, you know, actually... It's
0: like, what, what comes first?
6: I mean, like, you're talking about, like, the what to say reducing the birth rate or something or the Chinese people. They're trying to like do something like that. Yeah. And, um, or reduce the rate of girls. Yeah. yeah whatever it is. And because the statement that value doesn't matter at all right. is completely wrong. That's why, uh, talk like discussing about this, you know, value matter is important
0: that talking about value is important. Uh, yeah. I guess my point was, we talk about value and saying, well, you know, Julie and I went through, uh, not IVF, but we were talking to a doctor about it and he just called it material. You just can discard material. Um, And so that was the mindset during our pregnancies. Well, you can discard material of embryo. Women can get abortions um, of their child, but they wanted to restrict from Chinese people aborting daughters because they felt that one value was socially acceptable and was, one was not. Yeah?
3: I just have a question. Um, mm-hmm. So, where do these authors, what do they say about compassion and love? Like, are those values that they see having any meaning?
0: Uh, I'll get to that, but basically, no, it's sentiment. <laughs> it's sentiment.
1: <clears throat> so- they're not
0: real, but they're useful. <laughs> that's okay. what they would say they're, so they're, they're not real but they are useful okay. so there is a bit of an a internal contradiction here mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. but I'll get to that and Skinner really brings that up um, <coughs> so Schaefer says that Christians have two boundaries when they're considering values what can be done and what should be done but he says that the person who doesn't hold to a Judeo-Christian ethic doesn't have, or the materialist particularly, doesn't have the two boundaries. They just have the one boundary, what can be done. And so it becomes insufficient to tell us what shouldn't be done. That's why he says that materialism does not lead to manipulation. He says it leaves us open to manipulation. There's a fine difference there. Also Schaefer looks at neurological advancements at the time. And they discovered the ability to manipulate the mind with pills. This is very commonplace for us now. Um, Arthur Kessler called for pills that could be used for psycho-civilizing process. A psycho-civilizing process. So basically civilizing people in their psychology. Kessler also argued that we should put pills in drinking water. Which kind of gives rise to... (laughs) Schaefer's kind of alarmist image at how the end of how shall we then live? You you see water and these people driving up in vans and they're putting pills in the water and it's very scary, um, conspiratorial almost. But he's getting it from a person who was saying that we should do this and that these pills, if we put them in the drinking water, then it, it can it can make uh, it can make society more peaceful.
7: I'm just thinking of your. Probably thought of this, but the conspiracy theory around fluoride, right? Like the whole fluoride in the drinking water. I've never fact checked this, but supposedly that's what the Nazis put in the Jews' Jews' it's juice. The Jews' um, <laughs> drinking water to induce passivity. I don't know if that's huh? true. I don't
0: know, but it's interesting that. Um, I mean, I don't know if it's true, but just that that kind of mentality. It's like okay, let's use chemicals. To do this, and in fact, he uh, Schaeffer, not in this book, but in the Church at the end of the 20th century, says uh, we are, can worry about the A bomb and the H bomb, but he felt that we need to be more worried about chemical warfare in the future, and that's something that we have seen.
5: If there's no values, why try to alter people? If there's no values, why stop nuclear war? See, I'm, I'm hearing a lot of contradictions in what these guys are saying.
0: Yes, like well... They,
5: they talk about wanting elite. So classes, but we are all we should all be without chest?
0: Uh, well, it's... Yes, this, is I mean, you, 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 you get where Schaefer's going, but the point is, is that people cannot stop but be human. They can't stop but wanting values. Yeah. So you can say that the world is meaningless, but you can't live as if life is meaningless. Or not very long.
5: So, is he saying that? Because what I'm hearing, your Schaefer's not saying that. No, these guys are all just saying that we're just meaningless meaningless. hunks of dirt. But you know, it's interesting. The what
0: was considered the first postmodern novel, which I really enjoy, but it's really quite strange, uh, by John Bart called "The Floating Opera." Floating Opera. And in that book, he decides at the beginning of the day. He says, "Today, I'm going to commit suicide." um, At the end of the day because then I know that my whole whole day will be the last this, and the last that, and the last this. And so my life will be meaningful. Well, spoiler alert, (laughs) at the end of the book, he said, if life is meaningless, then uh, neither, I cannot commit suicide, because committing suicide or not committing suicide are the same difference. And so he ends up, Saying that life is just a floating opera on a river. And you watch it pass by, but you're just completely passive. And it leaves him with a sense of ennui and a sense of in, like passivity. So, yeah, I mean, that's where someone could end. But, but these people are not ending there because they think, okay, we are just raw material. We need to have the courage to see that. Uh, now, how can we make society better? Now, I'll get to why they say that, because the key for them is survival value.
1: Yeah.
0: Survival value. But I'll get to that in a minute. So while no one, as far as I know, are putting pills in drinking water for the common good, fluoride, maybe, I don't know, we do see the increase of the usage of pills in psychological care. We see the increase of pills in education. Ken Robinson um, is an educational theorist, not a Christian man says that people are using pills to help kids deal with the mind-numbing factory-like shape of education rather than allowing children to be creative and expressive since they're kind of in like these factory-like class classrooms doing scantrons or going on their computers and iPads and just being fact- like pushing them out like a factory so that they can be drones for society he says of course ken ram says that, of course they need pills they can't concentrate because you're asking them to be like machines. Education should be expressive, creative. Um, I'm not dealing with Ken Robinson's views of education, which are interesting. I don't go with them full, but I really like what he's saying here. But you can see that pills are being used in order to try to shape society or fix something in the way society wants to go. (coughs) I can also point to my father who used pills as a way of justifying gluttony. Um, I once saw him and he was drinking red wine and eating red meat, two things that he wasn't supposed to be having. And when I challenged him on this, he raised a pill and, um, from the table and said, Son, the magic of pills. Uh, so almost pills can almost justify action <clears throat> rather than saying, should we have character or virtue? You know, treating ourselves like raw material. So the last book um, or the last thinker is B.F. Skinner. Um, in his book, Beyond Freedom and Dignity, as I've shown you here. Now, this final figure is a behaviorist. Schaefer defines behaviorism for us, I think, very helpfully. <clears throat> I don't know if he gets it from somewhere else. Um, behaviorism declares, it's a psychological theory, declares that all of a person's behavior is the result of environmental conditioning, whether that conditioning occurred prior to birth and resides in the genes or subsequent to birth and resides in the external environment. So again, all we are, are a collection of heredity and environment, genetic makeup and environment. This means for Skinner that there is no such thing as ego or soul. There's no real autonomy. That means there's no real independence as an individual. You're not an individual. You're just a clump of matter with all clump of matter. In the language of C.S. Lewis from The Abolition of Man, people do not have chests. In fact, Skinner said that we must remove these false notions. So uh, you were asking the question about love and all these kind of things. Uh, He says we need to remove these false notions in order to come to grips with the true nature of the human person. We've got to let go of these delusions, these illusions, these things that we keep holding on to, these sentimental values. We need like
3: altruism, like treating people
0: kindly. We need to we need to figure out what makes people tick before we know what altruism is. Okay. Um. okay. Rather than saying altruism is um, is something that says, "Oh, I want to help the common good," maybe there's a genetic or environmental disposition that has created that. Okay. Uh, I was reading uh, Harari on views of happiness. You know. And he says that people who are generally um, uh, married are happier than single people. He says, does that mean that, um, he goes, some people would say, well, marriage makes people happy. He goes, but it could be the inverse, that happy people get married. (laughs) He says that just like, um, and he's just talking about, well, and actually from the behaviorist view, you can reduce happiness to dopamine, serotonin, and something else. Um, My wife's laughing something about our marriage i'm sure it's so happy
6: um <laughs> Just, I have a question yeah am i allowed yeah of course um let say uh, before i decided to study what i'm studying right now mm. uh, i've been thinking about like why art is so necessary for a human being mm. but if human i mean i'm not really sure if they really talked about it in their books but if human is just a combination of raw materials, then art supposed to be extinct because it's it's doing nothing uh, concrete or anything good for survival.
0: Yeah, well, uh, possibly. I mean, um, you have some people that say art can be used for propagandic reasons um, right. or art can... Um, is a way for us to um, to release certain chemicals. Like you, you can try to come up with other ways. But yes, it does. It does dismiss or diminish, if not belittle, the idea of the aspirations to express and to and to make something of yourself in the world that says I am me, I am of dignity. Uh, and so they would say, mm, no, that's not probably what it is. Like. Yeah, art is going to exist, but not because why you think it is. Okay. In fact, in Time magazine, talking about love and romance, they say, well, uh, they called it the science of romance. I've mentioned this before. But they said that there's no such thing as romance. Uh, What is it? It says, um, this person says, uh, the girl is about to kiss this guy on the cover of Time. And it says, she goes, I feel chemistry. And the man's thinking, my biological evolutionary... Uh, my evolutionary biology is kicking in, you know, and, and so time basically says, Oh no, it's not romance. It's a commitment mechanism in the body that makes it long enough where you have babies so the species can survive. So they're saying romance and love are not real. We like to like, we like to think that they're real because we'd be sad without them. Our friends, our little delusions, our little binky blankets, but we need to grow up and realize that it's all meaningless. It's all dr- it's all pushed by material causation. What's wrong with it? Okay.
2: So were these guys married or
5: not? <laughs> <laughs> like who would marry them? them? <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is a good question. You'll have to look in on that yourself.
5: Very very sad. I'm wondering if these huh? like guys who wrote bows? these books <laughs> okay. did they spend their entire life in solitary confinement? Because what they're saying sounds like they've never met a human being right. who has no. life and interests and joy. Well Skinner
0: uh, I mean he did deal with a lot of pigeons and rats and trying to figure out like how they moved around mazes and how many levers they would push and yeah. how many times they'd hit the dopamine button. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you learn a lot <coughs> and they were very helpful to understanding because, they're, because we are biological. Yeah. We are psychochemical. Uh, the Christian narrative doesn't say that we aren't. To reduce it to that can be a problem, but uh, I think that they feel that we've lived in daydreams for too long, we've lived in fairy tales too long, because the medievals argued about how many angels were on the head of a pen. Let's get real. It's dopamine, it's serotonin, it's something like that. And so the narrative shifted. Now, they aren't so shifted that they've moved away and abandoned uh, what Schaefer would say the memory of the Judeo-Christian ethic. They still live on the memory of it. But they're they're trying to push forward upon the memory of it, but haven't fully availed themselves to the meaninglessness. So this is why you have this. And also, I would say as a Christian that there's something, that they're made in the image of God and and, and they rebel. They have the the seed of religion, this divine sense in them that that rebels at the notion of being meaningless while they pursue meaninglessness in that sense. Nevertheless, let me keep going. No. So Skinner says we need to remove these false notions uh, of thinking that we have an ego or a soul in order to come to grips with the true nature of human person. And ultimately, the human person, behaviorally speaking, is simply moved from being controlled by one to being controlled by another. You're controlled by heredity, you're controlled by environment. And wherever you go, you're being controlled by environment. Uh, you might hear how, well, we, we might need something good to control. Right? Well, let's get to that in a second. So the Christian may say that the human person, while a part of the environment, affects the environment, can make change to the environment. Whereas Skinner says the environment wholly affects the person. Okay? The environment shapes us. Therefore, Skinner concludes that we must control the environment to improve humanity. So he has a laudable goal. He wants to improve humanity. Perhaps also wants to get rid of nuclear war weapons or something like that. And he calls this operant conditioning. Operant conditioning. So if you got a minor in psych, you probably would have heard this word. I did. I got a minor in psych. Uh, This means then that we are not to induce goodness. We're not to persuade the mind of the person. Rather, we are to create an environment to cause people to behave well. Okay. Um, in fact, I will point out later, there's a guy named Alan de Botton, who's a British philosopher and new atheist, who um, suggests something very similar for us today. Okay. Just written a few years ago. Mm, what is that? Hmm? What is that? It's a book, Religion for Atheists. Oh! But I will refer to that in a minute.
6: I, I read it. Like,
0: years ago. Yeah. yeah. Great. Uh, not only must we ask the question, what does behave well mean in a meaningless society, or meaningless uh, reality, but we should also ask, who will determine this proper behavior? Skinner says, well, it needs to be people of goodwill. If people of goodwill reject these techniques, these behavioral techniques, then it will be accepted and used by despots. Skinner says, quote, a permissive government is government that leaves control to other sources. A permissive government is government that leaves control to other sources. So if the government doesn't want to care for the people, then someone else will. Kind of idea. If the government doesn't want to use these techniques, then someone else will. Better you than them. Kind of idea. Now even Time Magazine kind of pulled back a little bit and said, while Skinner believes in Judeo-Christian ethics with the scientific tradition, so he was holding on to the memory of uh, Judeo-Christian ethics, though he himself was not a Christian, he fails to answer how it is possible to accept those ethics without also accepting something like the inner person with an autonomous conscience. Um, So what he's saying is... um, if, if Skinner is saying we need to accept these new ethics, this new behavioral way of mode, how can they, if, they um, if there's no such thing as an inner person? You're not persuading them, so you kind of have to force them to believe. It's kind of this question that, that operates at a couple levels. It also ans- um, leaves us with another question. Where do we find these good people? To be the academic and scientific elite. Are all scientists good people? Are all academics good people? A lot of people getting their doctors come here and they talk about how awful it was to get their doctorate. All the politicism that can happen within the academy. And yet there's another question. Within Skinner's behaviorism, where do the notions of acceptance and rejection come from if people are already conditioned? So, a somewhat similar point. <clears throat> so, Schaefer says the only way Skinner can live with his own position is to cheat and hang on to the Christian values even when he has supposedly given them up. When Skinner is consistent, he views the good as positive reinforcements, reinforcers. So, uh, in behaviorism, like if you want to, re- it's like a re- reward or punishment. But in in behaviorism, it's called positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement. Well, what is the good for Skinner? Well, positive reinforcement. What is the bad? Negative reinforcement. That's as far as it goes. But such good and bad are, for him, reduced to survival value. The importance of surviving as a culture. Yet, at the very base of his behaviorism... What grounds are there for even survival value? So he's trapped within a logical box. So if the world is meaningless and non-purposeful, then why should we be encouraged to survive? Why is that a value? And they asked him, and he said, well, if you don't believe it, then all the worse for you. (laughs) That's as far as he goes.
2: Yeah, I had this conversation with my brother, who's like his mate, yes like his he feels like everything should be that his ultimate value is human survival and and this very thing like scientists should basically control everything they're the ones who can best figure out how we survive and i said that to him i'm like well why does it matter if we survive or not why like why does that matter you know and some people actually here feel that it would be better for earth if humanity died Yeah. so is, are we better
1: than anything else
7: on
0: the earth that we should survive? In that some would argue that we're a, 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 a plague, virus. Yeah. a virus.
7: yeah. And survival, I mean, that's a relative concept anyway. It's just arbitrary because everyone's going to die. The sun's going to burn out. An asteroid's going to hit the earth at some point. So it's irrelevant. Like there's no such like thing as Like the rule of,
0: of atrophy. Like yeah. The, or the principle a- of atrophy. Like, entropy, that's yeah. There is no survival.
7: Like, I'm going to die one day, so why is it relevant 80, 90 years old as opposed to right now? It ha- there's, makes no difference.
6: Or people's life is good?
7: Good a
5: value, doesn't it?
6: Yeah. Or if human just try to create
0: value? Yeah, like keep pushing the rock. Yeah. That's where it ends up. Now, Schaeffer says that if you are pushing this on people and you say that you are a zero, um, don't you, do you remember Billy Corgan? He used to wear a shirt called Zero. I don't know if this is where he's got it, but he says that when, you are, when humans are considered zeros, they will riot, they will rebel. He said that's what happened at Berkeley. Um, because they revolt, because they know that their freedom and their dignity is being taken away, even though they may not have a basis from which, um, from which to argue. So then why would people accept such conditioning? Schaeffer says that they will accept this if they have already accepted the presuppositions of materialism and they have already succumbed to despair. Um, and they more deeply desire like this utopian vision.
5: This is like
4: the talk with Chris Hedges.
0: Exactly. Yeah. yeah, I thought about Chris Hedges. Yeah. So some people might say they'd rather be happy than free. So again, the vision of Brave New World. As Skinner himself says, Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are basic rights, but they are rights of the individual and were listed at such a time when the literature of freedom and dignity were concerned with the aggrandizement of the individual. But they only have a minor, here, um, have a minor bearing on the survival of a culture. So like life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Like, yeah, that's nice for the individual. But all that pursuit has very little survival value. So he says. Therefore, we need to do what we can to make. We need to do what we can to make of humanity what we want. Okay. But C.S. Lewis asked in *The Abolition of Man*: "If man conquers man, then who wins? If man conquers man, then who wins?" His ultimate conclusion is nature wins. But we won't get into his argument. But Schaefer says Skinner's attempt toward utopia is built on faith. So he thinks that through behavioral techniques that they can create a perfect society. Okay? Everyone's always helping each other. And he goes, but that utopia is built on faith. And it leaves four unanswerable questions. One, who is going to control the controllers? Two, where is the second boundary condition that puts a limit of right and wrong? on the first boundary condition of what man can do to man technologically. So saying that if man can do something to, or if if people can do things to other people, manipulate them through technology, then where's the second boundary condition that says they should not? He doesn't answer that question. Three, why does the biological continuity of the human race have any value at all? We just mentioned that. And four, If a man is such a poor observer as to so wrongly observe himself for 40,000 or so years and consistently conclude that man is different from non-man, then how can we trust man's observation of anything? Do you understand what he's saying there? He's saying the fourth observation. Thank you for being honest. Uh, He's saying, so all this new knowledge we always thought of. Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, and all these kind of things. And for 40,000 years, humans have been looking at themselves and figuring this all out and coming and figuring out language to put to it. Then, how, if they've gotten it wrong for 40,000 years, and now we only know now, then how can you say that your observation is correct? It might be proven wrong in 40,000 years. So he's like, so uh, Schaefer says that we are left with total skepticism in regard to any knowledge. And so instead of answering these questions, because Skinner can't, Skinner and those like him forge ahead with their utopian vision of society. Skinner had an extensive program in its areas of society. And so Schaefer says that they could only continue on the memory of Judeo-Christian ethics, but in doing so they seek to destroy the very thing that supports them. Uh, what I'm saying there is that um, they might continue on in the memory of Judeo-Christian ethics. Okay, we can live as if people have dignity, but we don't really believe that. But we're going to just keep on living off that heritage. Um, Schaeffer says that they're basically standing on this basis to do what they do, but trying to undercut it at the same time. They're Mm -hmm. trying to cut off the branch that they're standing on. Or Lewis, as always puts it best, in um, talking about the Tao, which is like traditional morality or whatever, and says the branches rebel against the tree. <laughs> I love that. The branches rebel against the tree. But after memory of Christianity or Judeo Christian ethics fades, then what will be the result? And so Schaefer ends his whole book saying, made in God's image, and he uses the word man since this was 71, made in God's image, man was made to be great, he was made to be beautiful and he was made to be creative in life and art. But his rebellion has led him into making himself into nothing but a machine. So he's saying that humanity has denied their image, and in doing so, they have created themselves into machines. With transhumanism, we might say he's quite accurate. Okay, so contemporary reflections. Yeah.
4: So, is this, so is Skinner, like, utopian in his views, or is he more utilitarian? I'm. I'm not sure what he was
0: saying. Well, uh, mm, he could be both. Because
4: uh, I think of like, Brave New World as being like, pacifying people to just be...
0: Well, there's, there's different visions of utopia. A place of perfect peace, perfect harmony of all humanity with nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Brave New World is an attempt at a utopia. But as we read it, we read it as a dystopia. Something is wrong, we feel wrong, but the people within the utopia may not see it as such. Does that make sense?
4: Yeah, but that's where I feel like we're at, like the dystopia. You know, we're, we're in this, people are being pacified.
0: Yeah, yeah. well, uh, we're being pacified because um, uh, the importance of our freedom, our mm-hmm. dignity is being diminished. And when we're being diminished, we are being pacified. We're not being encouraged people, to... And
4: also people are not wanting to have any... Experience any pain. And so you have to... Pass, you have to numb yourself.
0: Like, pills. Yeah, I mean, that—that that is the direction it can go, not yeah. Not pills. Not just pills. Or you comforts, affluence.
4: Yeah. This reminds me of the um, First Nations residential suite.
1: Mm.
3: Where white... And church um, were deciding <coughs> who can have children, who can't have children. The government was very women. much yeah. behind that. Yeah, yeah. they really as were, well.
4: and the church. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting, just as you're saying everything that you're talking about.
7: And disabled people too. Yeah. A lot of people growing up people that's in, true in yeah. care facilities. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, we have to think: is this happening today? Yeah. Okay. So I have some contemporary reflections. Uh, you may have many more, and I want to hear those. So while someone may think is being an alarmist, um, I should point out that he said that if any way he is being an alarmist, then he hopes that people will forget it. Um, But he does believe that these are serious issues that the church must think about. Um, But while some may consider him an alarmist, I would say he's not alone. Um, The show Black Mirror continually reflects on the consequences of technology on our humanity. While the makers are not Christian, the makers of the show, at least as far as I'm aware, um, they present how easily we can slide into darkness when we allow technology to not respect human freedom and dignity. We are overtaken by machines operated by an elite, whether that is a corporation or government. I do not think it is a coincidence that there are massive fears of totalitarianism. Fear of totalitarianism from the left, the fear of totalitarianism from the right. Okay. It's because we have lost the sense of humans bearing dignity. Uh, dignity not bestowed on them by nature or by the government, but by God. And we have thinkers that are similar to Skinner in behavioral ideas. Uh, consider Alain de Baton, the British pop philosopher, as I mentioned earlier, a new atheist one of the the smiling, kind ones, not the serious furrowed brow Dawkins, but, you know, friendly guy, kind of funny, who wrote that while the world is truly, truly meaningless, we must still attempt to try to construct a world of values, ones that are shaped by the government. So, you know, you were questioning, well, why do they care at all? And he's saying, well, we know that the world is meaningless. We all know that morality is a construct, but we can't help ourselves. When we become parents, we still parent our children with a certain code of ethics, a certain moral code. So he thinks that, well, we should have the state become kind of like our parent. We should have a paternal state. And that the government can encourage proper behavior through techniques. Uh, he 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 suggests that this can be done through moral propaganda particularly through advertisement.
3: But doesn't that assume that the government is good or benevolent? Absolutely.
0: That's the big question that hangs yeah. against Donnie Dewey Tong.
3: Otherwise, yeah. they could just do, well, they could do whatever they want. If, if the government change changes and becomes like the values that we think are bad now become good, then...
0: Yeah, I'll mention something like that in just a minute. Yeah.
5: I can think of a couple of examples of government that
0: isn't good huh? <laughs> <laughs> you had to strain yourself to think about that, yeah. right but, came couple pretty <laughs> um, but he suggests that we need moral propaganda uh, particularly through advertisement like we might want to we might want a, on a billboard forgiveness okay he has examples
5: well I've uh, seen that outside of a lot of churches actually. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well,
0: see, the thing is, he says that that's where he got the idea church. Uh-huh. And it's called religion for atheists. Mm-hmm. So he's saying that, well, when we gave up Christianity, we threw out the baby without, um, out with the bathwater. But the baby is not God. The baby is the rituals. The bathwater is the belief in angels and the belief in God and the belief in dignity. But we still need rituals to kind of shape us into the types of people we need to be. We need worshiping in society. We don't need God for that. We need prayer. We need weeping and lament, but we don't need God for that. And, and if you look at, uh, if you go into a church and as he does not believe in God, he sees, wow, there's all these kind of operant conditioning happening. There's a picture of a woman holding her baby, Jesus. Wow, that's the archetype of motherhood. It's teaching me how to be a mother by looking through this image. Oh, I see a cross. That's, that's giving me operant conditioning on forgiveness. Now, the Christian would not necessarily disagree. The point is is that there's a reality behind these images. Uh, They're icons, not idols. Icons point beyond themselves. Idols point to themselves. Um, And so, uh, Alain de Baton doesn't see power, but he says, wow, if the church can do that, maybe we should take the the rituals here, the practices they do in propagandizing their, their faith, into using that in society. We need to propagandize good morals, proper behavior. Um, and so he suggests that this should be done through advertisement. Um, Gillette, anyone, <laughs> the most recent commercial, huh? uh, Gillette uh, just had a commercial series on what is, uh, because Gillette has the, the motto, do you know what it is? No. The best a man can get. And so it's always showing these handsome, chiseled faces, shaving. And they're getting the sharpest razor, and sometimes there's a girl going "ew" or something like that. Um, or he's like getting out of the shower with his like towel, and he's ready to shave, even though he's already shaven. Uh, <laughs> you know these kind of commercials. Well, in the midst of the Me Too movement, they say, "Well, the idea of the best a man can get might not actually be the right motivation for people." And so they say, "What is the best a man can do?" or can get, and so it shows, they show bullying, and then someone says, hey, don't bully, that's not cool, uh, or, you know, and they just have various forms of what good masculinity is, good so male, with no, oh, okay. but it's just saying that, it's just, it's just, um, I can't remember the exact word for it, there's a new sociological term for it, but, uh, but the idea is that, I mean, Selling products, a long time ago, they abandoned the idea of selling the product, this this razor, you should buy this razor because it's sharper. They're not
5: selling the steak anymore, they're selling the sizzle.
0: Nice, exactly. It's virtue uh,
2: signaling. Mm-hmm. What's that? Virtue signaling.
0: Oh, yeah, virtue signaling um, is what I was referring to. But, you know, Starbucks is about community. Uh, Gatorade is about the transcendence of sport. Uh, you know, this is what uh, Naomi Klein talked about. Um, well, Gillette is selling good manhood. Now, the thing is, I'm not, I don't have a problem with saying manhood needs to be good. Um, but you start saying, well, how is this related to the product? And it gets a little suspicious and we get a little skeptical because we know that, you know, this created a huge furor about should Gillette be virtue signaling or not. And Gillette is very happy because now everyone's arguing and people are thinking about Gillette all the time. And so you start becoming skeptical, saying, "Okay, well, they're using good civic behavior and maybe signaling during the Me Too movement to sell razors, because their market is de- um because the their razors are in decline. They used to have eighty percent or ninety percent of the market share, and now they're at fifty percent because of the one dollar shave club." So people are like, "Oh, they had to think up something quick." If we want to be very cynical. But. The idea is that in society we need to use things like you know so promoting good behaviors from products, um, but what is <clears throat> not alarming, but should perk our ears up, is that Alan de Baton was taken seriously in England under the David Cameron government, and they started the Behavioral Insights Team which is also referred to colloquially the nudge unit. And it was a part of their cabinet in England to push um, people to act civilly, to pay their taxes, to get their insurance, to do all these things. And they had all these behavioral psychologists um, uh, pushing people toward right behavior. And I've talked to many people in England who were giving me anecdotes about their experience of that. Um, but they're no longer a part of the cabinet, not because they were unsuccessful, but they because they are successful, and now they're a private, sec- they're part of the private sector.
1: Hmm.
0: So Alan de Botton has had a huge impact. Okay, now we may also reflect on what this means. Someone like Alan de Botton or Skinner or anyone, um, what this means in a society that's dominated by surveillance. England is covered in cameras. When I visited Korea, I was shocked that they did not ask for my passport. They just took a picture of my face and asked for my fingerprints. Okay? So they recognized me by facial recognition software. I've never been to Korea, but they could identify who I was. Okay? Well, now they can. (coughs) No, no, no. But they, you know. This one Russian woman, Yulia, at Korean library told me that a friend of hers was fine for jaywalking in Korea. Uh, And she found this fine in her mailbox when she got home.
1: Yeah, because there's
0: cameras. There's cameras everywhere. Mm. Okay. Uh, And so you start thinking, huh, what's the role of surveillance if the mindset is behind behavioral conditioning? Calling for proper behavior.
5: Well, that's the difference between the carrot and stick, eh? How so? well, the conditioning, the nudging, oh, maybe right. be the carrot, and the fine in your mailbox is the stick. <laughs>
0: yeah. that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, negative yeah. and positive, or some yeah. kind of reinforcer. Yeah,
5: yeah, good and bad reinforcement.
0: Uh, I was just talking to my friend in Point Roberts, uh, and he was telling me about friends. Uh, they were discussing that they they had just found out that they were pregnant, and they were talking together at night on their couch at home. They didn't tell anybody. They went to sleep. They woke up in the next morning. And on their, on their devices, there were commercials commercial for diapers, abortion clinics, and all this kind of stuff. And they are like, what happened? And they found out that their microphone was on. And it signaled to sell them a product. Okay. So not only is there surveillance, but data is being used to promote products. But imagine with the mindset that I've been laying out or Shaver's been laying out if that type of surveillance was being used toward proper conditioning, proper behavior. You see
7: the microphone on the phone?
0: On the phone. On the, phone. This
3: is well, the cell this phone? Is, this is well documented.
0: On the cell phone. That they
3: will listen to what, what you're hearing and then market. So. What type of cell phone? Like, like. Smartphone.
6: Yeah, smartphone. Yeah. I mean, it's so like, like there are a lot of people who already actually exper- experiment like about that. Like, they uh, talked about, like, Pat or something like over and over again. Yeah. And they took a, like, video of, what to say, the Google like websites uh, before and after. And suddenly Google started showing up all about like, you know, pet food or that kind of thing, even though they didn't actually do any They
3: didn't actually research do or something.
4: Oh, this it. isn't
3: Google at home. Like it's like Sarah and Adam have It's So that's free on your cell phone. Yes. Yeah. yeah your cell phone, even though you oh, didn't oh, actually, oh,
6: you know, yeah. oh, like, yes. So uh,
0: her, like, as windows. one person put it, uh, because early on in computers, you know, uh, you know, you had histories and stuff, and people can hide and delete and all this kind of stuff, and, and you could kind of tell that someone was kind of watching you, but they said, now um, people are more seen, and the surveillancers are less seen. They've become more invisible as you've become more visible. Okay.
3: Sorry, I just put it posted over my camera on my... On my- Even
0: Steve Jobs yeah, I- was very suspicious of his own technology... Mm-hmm. And covered all the cameras on his devices.
3: Has that been reported to the privacy commissioner? No, seriously, that's actually you know
6: like when there was actually a some kind of you actually did, did agree. Yeah, uh, when you turn on your phone, phone, or when you like log in your iCloud or whatever, yeah. there are actually there's kind of conditions like that. Yeah. There's like accept the conditions.
0: Oh, I'm not gonna read all that. Yeah. Yeah.
6: yeah, but nobody <laughs> cares about it. They just press like I agree button. Mm-hmm. yeah, and, yeah. and they might
0: send out a long, very detailed thing saying on how you can turn things off and how you can set your own conditions to and privacy. you can on.
6: actually turn off that kind of function as well. Yeah. Mm. You know.
0: Mm. So imagine if data is being collected and used by third parties and by governments, one can see how easily social manipulation can occur. Not saying that it does occur, it it seems to in some ways, but you can see how it could be used for very uh, uh, nefarious ways. Or consider that some people like Kevin Hart recently, who was socially punished for expressing views on Twitter Twitter over 10 years ago, uh, any data, Collected at any point may be judged by the present society, um, may be judged by the present views of society, Mm -hmm. not as a moral absolute. Um, This means that when one expresses a view, and I'm not in favor of what Hart said, I'm not saying that. I'm saying this means that when one expresses a view, which may be socially acceptable at the time, but in the future it may not be, you can be punished. You know, Twitter never forgets. Mm -hmm. We can easily imagine how manipulation um, can fall into the hands of government and the hands of society. Okay? A lot of this is because society has been reduced to quantification rather than qualification or quality. Uh, human beings are seen as quantity rather than quality.
5: Right. <laughs> I, I'm a little offended by that. But...
0: <laughs> quantity, you're a
5: a quality guy.
0: A quality guy, yeah. Yeah. A real quality guy. Really great personality. Uh, (laughs) Thank you. uh, I mean, okay. I could go on and on, but many things. Uh, There are more instances that we can see in our society um, which deems morality a construct, which deems human dignity scientifically unverifiable, um, yet that society is guided and ruled by arbitrary absolutes. As Schaefer said, our society is locked in a logical box. They say that morality does not exist, yet still continue to enforce morals or values that they deem necessary. Um, But I think that there's still hope. Even though people may not say that they believe in um, moral absolutes, they are still tethered to it in some way. You know, the branches rebelling against the tree. Somehow they can't get away from it. People still rebel when they're told that they're zeros. <coughs> Perhaps go into schools and shoot. Um, that's a despairing situation, but people are tired of being called zeros. Nobodies. And so the Christian may say, well, there's a divine sense in each person that they're tethered to something, and they're longing for something they know not what. Okay. It's an opportunity, I believe, for Christians to respond in a meaningful way. And to show a meaningful alternative, and this is where I finish. So this talk is going a bit longer because we're discussing while we go. So forgive me. But this is where we end the Christian response. <clears throat> Schaefer asks, um, I, I said, um, well, as I said earlier, will people accept conditioning? And Schaefer said that they wouldn't had they not already accepted the presuppositions of materialisms in schools, and through media, and were they not already in despair. Uh, Charles Taylor in his book Ethics of Authenticity say that people are willing to abdicate their responsibility to the common good and give their power to the government as long as they continue to receive personal luxuries. So we are being conditioned and allowing ourselves to be conditioned. As long as we continue to receive our luxuries, we will give our power to the government because we don't want the sacrifice of um, being for the common good. Um, So we must have a way to respond to these issues in society, and people's lives, and I believe that Christians and Christian community does have a response. Um, Shaver argues elsewhere, but only leaves it implied in how Christians may respond in society that hold materialistic convictions. But he says, and this is how he implies it, he says that young people are leaving churches for two reasons. One, they have not received reasonable answers to their questions, and two, they have not experienced supernaturally restored relationships. They have not experienced true community in Christ. So let me look at these two. So Schaefer, in his book, The Church at the End of the Twentieth Century, as he as you can find in this one, <clears throat> uh, it precursors back to freedom and dignity. He says, first, people are not receiving reasonable answers. And so this is Christians. First of all, must become aware of what is happening at the societal level. They need to understand what is happening at the philosophic level. What are the issues and the pressures younger people are really facing? What kind of literature are they engaging? And so if Christians aren't engaging, then they can have little hope of knowing how to respond to the questions their children ask them. Rather, parents just recite, this is Schaefer. Just recite Christian sentiments amongst their influence and comfort and encourage their children to remain conservative. And this is what Schaefer says from the church at the end of the 20th century. One of the greatest injustices we do to our young people is ask them to be conservative. Christianity today is not conservative but revolutionary. If we want to be fair, we must teach the young to be revolutionaries, revolutionaries against the status quo. He says that the church is often bought into the status quo. I think a part of this, and Schaefer would agree, is that to treat people as people with chests. To treat people with dignity. To treat people not as objects, but as those made with the dignity God has made them to have. Um, for instance, uh, when I talk to someone on TELUS to give me some help, I know they're in India. And I have found out a lot about um, these lovely East Indian women and about their lives and how it's four in the morning or six in the morning and they're going to go home to their kids. And it's been really lovely. And it's become a human interaction. I'm not treating them as objects. I've seen people treat people like objects on the phone. If they're like, oh, this person's from India, they're not Canadian, I can't believe I have to call someone from so far away, why can't tell us, get their act together and something like that. Or treat someone with dignity in the grocery store. You know, uh, my friends were teasing me last night because when I was at the um, checkout, uh, I was chatting with the woman behind the thing and saying, Oh, um, are you having a good day? Are you, are you getting off work soon? Is, it kind of, is this job boring? Like, and they're just like, Oh my goodness, Clark is having a conversation. <laughs> um, <laughs> let's just get the stuff and go. Um, uh, or, um, and this is where Schaefer is, to engage people's questions seriously and deeply. Schaefer often wept. Schaefer wept with real tears as he engaged people's questions. And I believe that's a revolutionary way that Christians need to be, to read and to engage only the the thoughts of what people are dealing with, the issues that people are dealing with, and the people um, that face them. The second way I think that Christians can be revolutionary is to demonstrate the reality of God's supernatural reconciliation on earth. It won't be experienced perfectly, it won't be experienced fully, but it should be a taste. Too often people in the church act no differently, if not worse, than those outside of it. Um, Schaefer talks about this time and again. Sometimes people will treat congregations as something defined numerically. How many people are in their congregation, how big their church is. Or are they try to quantify by how much people give. Sometimes uh, people in the church fall prey to identity politics, whether whether they attempt the church to be left or right. We must be careful with all these things to say, no, we live a different narrative. We must be careful to make Christ at the center of our relationships, where real confession, real forgiveness, and real forbearance happen. When people get a taste of redeem relationships where they are received as having full dignity, they get a taste of something revolutionary. They're not zeros. This happens not by occupying Paris, thinks Chris Hedges, who referenced the French Revolution, but rather by real and meaningful relationships. And so I think Christianity can be revolutionary, not because of some program, but because Jesus is the living one the one who is raised from the dead. He has real power. And people who are in that give real power to people. And they are able to treat people with real freedom and real dignity, bringing back freedom and dignity to society that is in desperate need of it, rather than feeling that they're raw material that can be quantified and manipulated. That ends my talk, but let's keep talking together. If you need to leave, um, so if we started a bit later, you can, but if you want to keep talking, let's do. Um, uh, hold on, uh, Liz and then Jim. One,
2: one, just one question first. Um, when you listed the four, the four issues with this whole sort of behavioral, whatever system.
0: The four unanswerable questions.
2: Yeah. That, what was the third one? I just wanted to write that down. Or if you could summarize it.
0: <laughs> I, I have to look because I can't remember it exactly. <coughs> the third is why does the biological continuity of human race have any value at all? Oh, okay. So why does survival survival value have value in a valueless worldview? Thank you. <laughs>
2: um, I think that uh, I was just thinking while well, you were just mentioning that the evolutionary stuff and. I think with this like mechanistic sort of way of viewing humanity, um, like th- a lot of that is a pushback against this. I think that people are looking for something that makes them special and unique mm. and gives mm. them value, and a lot of that then gets mired in in this kind of thing. Like mm. I-, I am this, therefore I have value, mm. like this label or that label that gives me or, and then which label has the most value and which person has the most right to speak in this situation. Yes. Um, and I, I feel like, yeah, that's like a direct response to this feeling of being made zero or whatever.
0: Yeah. I think at the personal level, that's how identity politics probably does function where people see that it is the possibility of having value in their uniqueness and wanting to be affirmed in that uniqueness. Um, which um, is the definition of authenticity uh, for C. Charles Taylor um, to be unique and to be affirmed in that uniqueness. Uh, and I think identity politics is an attempt toward it. I think that the problem with that, though, and the reason identity politics has not been so successful, it's been popular but not successful in a sense of... I mean, it, it has in some ways. It hasn't in others. and But... From what I understand, it really follows the neo-Marxist philosophy of um, where classic Marxism, as I understand it, is the distribution of material goods, where neo-Marxism is the equal distribution of power, and everyone needs to have a seat at the table. But um, and Schaefer even talks about ideal Marxism, saying that that still carries on the vestiges of Christianity or Judeo-Christian ethics, and that it can't survive beyond them. So uh, in that sense, I think that identity politics borrows on this idea that humans have inherent dignity. But neo-Marxism would not claim that there, is a, there are any true essences or true qualities or true natures. Um, In fact, much of the argument is fluidity or something like that in in some regards. Uh, But it seems like identity politics has actually positioned us against each other. Uh, Well I'm a white male, you're a black woman, therefore we have no commonality And, and we start identifying by our uniqueness rather than by what we share in common. And so it follows this kind of idea that those who are in power can decide what is valuable, just as it is with what Schaefer was saying. And I think identity politics is being used, or people are piggybacking on it, Jordan Peterson thinks that, um, or some people within identity politics are pushing for it, however it works, that it's often being used in order to say, Because of this We should have power And power to create And so we're all trying to create All these elites In a sense Into being divided against each other Uh, And so it's breaking down Um, Yeah
5: It it
4: does seem that we're in a place in Canada Where Like What we think would be right Is being called wrong And what we think is wrong Is being called right Like just what Elena was Thing, like I think of um, yeah I mean it's it's the way that I'm educating my children it seems dangerous or morally wrong to people to be teaching them those kind of values and then at the same time where um, I heard it like My Christian values. Yeah, I, I don't know if it was something that you had read or um, just with the trans um, gender, especially sex change. What do you, um, transition? Transition. Retransition. Now, I have heard in Canada that it is like I don't know if it was a psychologist or a doctor, what position you would be in, but you you can you can recommend that people receive counseling if they want to transition but it's actually illegal to recommend trans to recommend counseling for someone to sort of say you don't have to do this or maybe you have the wrong idea about this so it just seems like so crazy to me that you <laughs> that that's and, and that doesn't surprise me in Canada that one would be okay, and one would be like... Um, do, do you recall where you read that? Or
0: Well, there's a, there a doctor in Toronto who was doing a reassignment. That's what i meant. Reassignment. This
4: was, this was even more recent than that. Oh. Like, it was about counseling. You cannot... Well, no, yeah,
0: right. So this guy was counseling. doing reassignment in his clinic for adults. Mm-hmm. But then when children came,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and, uh, and they said, I want you um, to help my child transition. And the doctor said, no, I think that they should probably have some uh, therapy or some kind of counseling because the majority of people will um, have at some point a disorientation or a dysphoria with their body and they will um, most often come to, uh, come to grips with their own body. And so I think that the first step is therapy or counseling or something like this. Well, uh, there's been a huge push against that, and the guy had to close his clinic, oh. even though he was for transition surgery for adults. And the reason is is that people said, well, that is repressive, and the earlier the better. So the earlier we transition children into, um, into the gender that they are or um, identify as, uh, then the, the less problems they will have. Let's get puberty blockers in hormonal um, injections and uh and uh gender expression all this as early as possible so that um so once you start saying no they need to go to therapy Mm. you're kind of denying that that need for them to transition you're 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 denying a transgender right
2: so the self-made
4: elite are making the decisions yeah the
0: government yeah and so this is like
4: the christian values are dangerous but this is this is you
0: know not it's right
3: right. Right? And that's a huge, I would think, irreversible surgery.
0: Well, they or say that be. what they do is yeah, I mean, the surgery, it's not totally irreversible, but it will have permanent consequences. Uh, but some people will encourage puberty blockers in hormone therapy at first, and they feel that that is, in mo- for the most part, you know, um, you can kind of. Or at least the theory is. I don't know how provable it is. I'm not sure. Uh, but they said that you can kind of move through that. But this is, you know, this is what I you think. You can't
3: vote by, Like, I just, I, you have such dichotomies in our society, right? You can't, you can't vote. But you can, like, a child can make that type of human, decision. Yeah, for themselves. Or get a
0: tattoo. eighteen. Yeah. Or get an abortion.
3: But you can't yeah. choose, yeah. like, what, what, you know government is going to govern our society
0: so that's why it's arbitrary absolutes like why this one and not the other but this is why I think Jordan Peterson is so popular and so hated um, notorious Um, and it's because he's saying that the institutions there's an academic elite in society that is fed on neo-Marxism that is fed on the new left uh, and he's saying that what it's doing is it's trying to silence people um, and it's trying, to, uh, it's trying to deny freedom of conscience and freedom of speech. By, um, because in Canada, uh, the bill that has been for parliament, I don't know if it's been passed, maybe it has been passed, um, call, um, around transgenderism, saying that not only can you not speak hatefully against trans, but uh, gender people or people who fit within the LGBTQ community uh that not only can you not speak hate speech which peterson affirms um but on the other side is that you are compelled to address the person by the pronoun that they prefer so if i say i'm she you must call me she um, or be at risk of being fired or fined can't i just
5: call you clark
0: Um, you can and uh yeah and pronouns don't always show up but they do show up from our experience from within libri we've um, personally, experience this, but um, but what he's against is compelled speech. He says, "I'm not against trans people. I'm against the government telling me how I need to think about trans people, uh, and how I need to speak about trans people." And and so, what he's trying to address is what he's saying, and if I read him rightly, is that he's saying uh, he's against more of the trans activists, not the LGBTQ community or people who identify as gender dysphoric or something like that he would say that he's against those who are trying to use neo-marxist ideology and use them as a piggyback on the lgbtq in order to restructure society around its elite system and he found that this elite system is in the academy Mm -hmm. and it's having this direct influence on the government and so that's what peterson is really trying to push against Uh, and i think that he's saying that this is arbitrary absolutes in the same way. So I think that he's kind of similar to Schaefer in that regard, even though Peterson himself is um, ag- agnostic, as far as I know. Um, uh, I think an existentialist. Um, but yeah, similar.
7: Yeah. Um, well, I've got a number of thoughts at the same time. But, well, I'll just, i got a main idea, but I'll just jump in with the Peterson thing and just say that, yeah, like a lot of trans people do actually support him because it makes sense if I felt like I was a woman my entire life and it's like I just want to be a woman boom I'm a woman and that has no bearing on a compelled pronoun it's like I'm a woman whereas you have these ideological people that those are the ones mm-hmm. that have an axe to grind who are like I'm a smurf kin I'm an androgynous smurf, smurf spirit or something and you must refer to me as such and that's the ones that really have fervor with him because you know most yeah anyway most of the trans community that are that are they still operate within that binary construct they're just in the wrong place and they just get slotted into the the right one so to speak. anyway mm-hmm. but um but yeah so they they like him for most point yeah. but um the- the main thing I was gonna say is um oh just tying it back to Christianity because we've talked about a lot of there's so many ways this intersects with today's uh the problems of today's culture and stuff like that. We could go on all night about, but I just look at, um, when I look at goodness and I go back to like Genesis, the way that God created the world and the air and sea and the order of it, you see order. And I don't mean order. It's like this, 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 um, dictatorial. It must be like this. You see a, like we talked before, Wendell Berry talks about economy. Like everything is balanced. It, feedback loops everything is in a pure interdependent state and built as such man is for woman woman is for man man and creation harmony and that's the ideal and then when we decenter from that things get really run amok and we see that throughout the bible from the fall onward and like we see polygamy and we see all these things happening which cause that decay and so but the thing I was going to I wanted to mention is that what I see so problematic in today's time, you pick whatever issue it is. The pathway back to goodness—that's why Jesus Christ says, "Through me, you know, there's grace." But be a living sacrifice. Take on your burden. Be a sacrifice. Sacrifice um, against the flesh. And and so, anyway, what I see as a problem in today's society is that it's a continuation of that. There's almost like a, a desire to take things from their their interdependent component. It's like We're losing trees. Let's invent tree machines. I don't know why I use that, but it's a weird example. But like, you know, what is... um, You you know, consuming food for taste alone. That's fast food. That's evil. Um, You take, like, parental relationships. They're not interdependent. They're not economic. And it's now... um, I just read this thing today. Like, uh, you have to parents should ask consent when changing their baby's diapers Hmm. and it's like taking the it's just weird taking the 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 interdependent economic pure structure of the way things are meant to be and inverting them disassociating them twisting them and reappropriating them in a kind of inverted ad hoc we'll say pseudo structure or something and I, you see that everywhere and it's almost like people so I'll just say this finish with this last point um, last thing that I'm saying. The problem with I, when I look at this in some ways it's self-evident that uh, um, in terms of what good is and how to achieve that right but the problem that I see is that there is this it seems like there's this unconscious ideology at work where people are so, um, people will die before they admit that they're wrong, right? And it's like fundamentalism. And you see that in, in, there's just this reverence almost for what, for, for profaning what would be sacred, if that makes sense. And I see that ongoing and it's this subordination to ideology. So it's like humanism, all these things, we can have our autonomy, we can have our, um, Make our own meaning, and even if this ship seems to be sinking and going down, whatever, at least I'll, I'll cling on to this. Mm. So that's a lot of garbled concepts strung together, and a lot of deep-level stuff. But that's the real challenge that I see today, um, in terms of, you know, sacred and profane. Anyway. I'll
0: yeah. Oh. Well, I mean, I I think that uh, by doing this talk and by looking at Schaefer dealing with keeping it simple by looking at materialism and what are the effects by reducing humanity to um, uh, to raw material by removing their chests so I think we deal we have to deal with these sections one at a time Mm
1: -hmm.
0: but you're right I mean it it does affect all areas of life because if you don't put Christ at the center because you know uh, In Colossians, Paul says that in him and for him, um, or in all things, uh, uh, in Christ, all things hold together. And so really Christ is this, what Schaefer calls the integrated principle that all things hold together in Christ and and how that affects politics, economics, society, families, on and on. Well, once you remove Christ and you exchange it for something else, let's say that, okay, now it's not God at the center. It's material. You know, you, you, as one person says that any kind of non-dependent reality, whoever says this is the origin and it is a non-dependent reality, then you can consider that God. And that will be the explanation of everything around it. And what it does, if it's, if it's not shaped by God, what it does is it distorts mm-hmm. all these fears around this new ideology. This new idol, Uh, and so, um, so yeah, yeah, I think that we just need to deal with with these simple exchanges. The Bible, and and it does start becoming unfurled and can be chaotic, and and so,
7: anyway. Like I'll just add, like people, I think the big crux is a lot of people look at this. And I would say the people that are on board with humanism and stuff, they would go, there's, well, what do we do with alienation and power and all these things? And some of them, at least, I would like to believe are, are genuinely concerned with those things. But the problem is that we, I mean, the Christian narrative, it's not a problem for us, I suppose. I'm assuming everyone's a Christian, but um, no, I'm just, I'm not really, but it's just my speech, so... Forgive me for that. Um, the basis of that is that we absorb that. That's, I mean, you, you you absorb that. You look at the narrative of the world is less than ideal. My response is yeah. And it's like, well, so what? So what? Like, well, what about the revolution? You no. Know? Like, yeah, I'm. Not, you know what? I'm not making a lot. of... I'm hogging the airtime, so I'll.
0: Okay, well, we lay, yeah. lay there and, yeah. and... I just got one, one
5: quick question. Yeah. How long have you been a Smurf?
7: How long have you been a Smurf? <laughs> uh, I'm one of those genders where I oscillate every five minutes. Ah, okay. Yeah.
1: Smurfs? Kind of like
0: uh, Ursula K. Le Guin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, left side, the Left Hand of Darkness. I don't know. Where gender fluctuates. Oh, anyway. That's right, okay. It's a sci-fi book.
1: Um, yes. um, i not really
6: sure if it has any relevance or not, but um, this is something... Uh, some kind of lecture I got in the, back in Korean library like seven years ago. Mm-hmm. It was about naturalism. Mm-hmm. Um, is there any, uh, what do you say, what's the difference between materialism and naturalism?
0: It's a very good question. Um, there are, I, for the most part, they're similar. Right. I mean, They're not exactly the They're not exactly the same. They're not synonymous. But sometimes they are. So there, there is overlap between materialism and naturalism, but they're not always the same thing. Thank you, mm-hmm. uh, But materialism says that at the center, um, at the origin of all things is matter, and naturalism says at the center of all things is nature. Well, nature has a little bit more flexibility than matter. So um, there's a division of materialism that can be strict materialism, and then I think it's called... Coordinated or I can't remember exact word, con- consubstantial materialism or something like that where um, where consciousness became a byproduct of the material and now they coexist and other people say no freedom does not exist like Sam Harris or um, things like that don't exist where n- naturalism may also say that but you'd have to say well what is natural well even in our discussions we'd be like well that's not natural or that's natural Uh, well what is nature it
6: defines what's natural is
0: is uh, loving a person natural or is that a byproduct of nature like and so naturalism actually has a I, as I understand it, it's a bit larger and a little bit more ambiguous. So, like, uh,
6: materialism might be subordinate to naturalism somehow, because matter actually... It would
0: be one of the categories that could fall within naturalism, uh-huh. but materialism, I think, is more precise to what we're dealing with, but, yeah, I mean, just take it as synonymous. Okay, gotcha. Then you'll be fine.
6: Because, like, what you, how you describe, like, materialism sounding almost exactly the same as the yeah it's very similar yeah. yeah
1: yeah
0: yeah exactly yeah. okay well let's end there yeah it okay. seems like um people